Well, I invite you to join me in standing out of reverence and honor for the reading of God's holy word. If you have your Bible, we'll be continuing on in our sermon series this morning as we peer back into the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have your Bible, there should be one in the chair back in front of you. Our text for this morning can be found on page 882. We've been spending what is almost a year and a half now in the Gospel according to Luke, and this morning we see the teachings of Jesus on what is Thursday before His Passion, the very night before His crucifixion. And so let us turn our attention now to the reading from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. Luke 22, verses 24 through 38. And these are the words of God. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has No sword, sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And so ends the reading of God's holy word thus far. And Redeemer Church, what do we know of God's word? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise You that Your Word is living, that it is active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint, of marrow, even unto the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we ask now that You would grant us sincere hearts 
to receive your word with eyes to see, with ears to hear, that we might be rooted in Christ, built up in him, and established in the faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. I am the greatest. Fifteen times I've told that clown what round he's going down. And this chump ain't no different. He will fall in eight to prove that I'm great. And if he keeps talking jive, I'm going to make it five. Why? Because I am the greatest. Well, you may recognize those are the self-assured words of the great boxer, one Muhammad Ali, as he is foretelling his certain victory over his opponent, one Sonny Liston, the so-called chump that he's referring to, who was regarded as unbeatable at the time. But perhaps even more important than his victory, which Ali did secure in the seventh round, by the way, so he was wrong, Muhammad Ali wanted one fact to be indisputed. One fact to be shouted from the rooftops, and that was his status as the greatest boxer of all time. Well, this morning in Luke's Gospel, we have the disciples who, while not quite as brazen as Muhammad Ali, we witness them dispute the very same topic, the matter of just who is the greatest, which one of them should be regarded as the best. Instead of settling that dispute... What emerges instead is the nature of true greatness coming from the mouth of the true Savior. And so our main point this morning is very simple, is that true greatness is found in Jesus Christ. True greatness in Christ. And so we'll walk through the text in three portions, looking firstly at true greatness, secondly, true security, and then lastly, true fulfillment that is found in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So firstly, true greatness, looking at verses 24 through 30. And notice verse 24, as I alluded to, the disciples have this dispute over who is the greatest. So who knows? Perhaps Peter says, hey, guys, I was the first one called. Maybe Matthew responds, hey, I was a tax collector. I left a steady income stream. I gave that up to come and follow Jesus. Maybe James and John respond, hey, so what? We're the sons of thunder. With a nickname like that, surely we are the greatest disciples. And what's more, this is not the first time this debate has occurred. If you recall back to Luke chapter 9, Jesus silenced this very same argument by taking a child and placing a child in their midst, saying that whoever is least among you, that, that is who the greatest is. But clearly this is a lesson not easily learned. Because in Luke 22, on the last night before his crucifixion, instead of focusing on the greatest person in the world and the greatest event in the world, instead they argue for status, for identity, for greatness. We could ask at the onset, do we face a similar temptation? Could you see yourself in this story? Certainly we are far too well-mannered to have this debate, at least to have it out loud. How often it is that silently, secretly, we desire the recognition of just how great we really are. Admiration of our parenting, 
of our ministry, our gifting, our service, our success, and our vocation, for our name to be mentioned just a little bit more, just a little bit more traffic on social media, just a little bit more opportunity that's commensurate with how great I am. While we may not verbalize it, we so often require praise and approbation from peers, such that if we don't have it, it's so often met with aggression, passive aggression, even a resentful kind of anger or bitterness. And so in that context, Jesus comes and he is going to debunk their view of greatness. As you look at verse 25, Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors. So in order to debunk their view, Jesus invokes this idea of the lordship of the Gentiles, as it represents the world's way of going after greatness. Gentile ruler, you could think of a Roman emperor, would have all authority and power. He could live for himself, and in doing so, he liked to flatter himself as a philanthropist. So when all the cameras are pointed at him, when all the media is surrounding him, he says, hey, how about we call me a, a benefactor? Verse 25, literally a, a do-gooder. And this is the world's method. The more power and authority you accrue, the more leverage you have over those underneath you. And very plainly, very bluntly, verse 26, Jesus says, not so with you. It will not be this way with my disciples. And then he's going to redefine greatness. And he gives two, what are really counterintuitive characteristics of greatness. Firstly, humility. Verse 26, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. If you are the youngest at this time, then, then de facto, everyone else is more important than you are. And so Jesus is just colorfully reiterating Philippians 2. In humility, consider others more important, more significant than yourself. And secondly, he expands on this humility by saying that it displays itself by serving. The youngest was expected to serve in rather menial tasks. And so verse 26 continues, Jesus says, the leader will be one as, who, as one who serves. And it really is by putting those two concepts together, leading and serving, that he is flipping the world upside down. This was an age when to be a leader meant you bark out orders at those underneath you. That as a leader, you do not serve others, others serve you. That is the perk. That's the point of being a leader. So let's ask, where does your definition of greatness fall? There's this old expression that goes like this. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. <laughs> Simply meaning when it comes time to change the world, to quote, be a difference maker, we all rush in with excitement, with zeal, with gusto. And now where is that same energy? When it's time to perform an ordinary, menial task for the benefit of somebody else. So to be clear, Jesus is not saying that there should be no leaders, no authority, no hierarchy. Rather, he's saying that the more people there are to lead means the more people there are to serve. How do you define greatness? Kids, if your childhood was at all like mine, I'm sure you've spent at least some time arguing over who is the greatest? Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Who is the greatest soccer player of all time? Who is the greatest baseball player of all time? The answer to that, by the way, is Nolan Ryan. <laughs> if you disagree, well, we're going to have words. 
The greatest team, greatest musician, who is the greatest superhero of all time? The kids, hear what the Lord Jesus is saying. The greatest of all is the one who serves. The greatest of all is the one who thinks of others. And be encouraged. You do not have to be great to serve, but you must serve if you will be great. And maybe you're asking, well, where do I find such greatness? Where do I look for such greatness? And kids, no, you can look no higher, no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is right where Jesus goes, as you can see next in verse 27. Jesus says, who is greater, the one who reclines, yes, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I, I am among you as the one who serves? And so here is greatness not simply described, but greatness exemplified, greatness epitomized. There is no greater embodiment than the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, the one whom angels worship, performing tasks so disproportionate to his glory, such as this, serving the disciples at table. Or how about getting down on a knee and washing the dirty, dusty feet of the disciples? There is no greater glory than the Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And so he's calling his disciples as well as us to follow him. And this is a lesson that they had better well learn. They had better get used to using authority in this kind of way because you can see what comes next in greatness promised in verse 29. I assign to you, more literally, I covenant to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink in my kingdom and even sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Jesus, of course, as king, is not only the one who brings the kingdom, he delegates the kingdom, this new covenant kingdom. Israel is meant to be a light to the nations, a task in which they, in so many ways, failed at. And now Jesus is saying, you will take that place. And remember, at this point in history, there have not been 12 visible tribes for seven centuries. 700 plus years of no visible tribes. And now Jesus turns to this ragtag group of disciples, these vagabonds, and he says, you, you will finish the kingdom project. And church, that is a promise that extends to us as well. One of the great quirks of C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia is that the four Pavenzi children, the main children of, of the stories, they're told very, very early on in the story that though they are but children, there are four thrones waiting for them. Four thrones in which they are destined to be the future kings and queens of Narnia. And then that moment finally comes, and it is the great lion, Aslan himself, with his great paw, I envision him crowning these children, saying, long live King Peter, long live Queen Susan, wear it well, son of Adam, daughter of Eve. And of all things that night, there is a great feast of joy, of revelry, of dancing as they sit on their thrones. And as you read through that story, you knew that every moment up to that was just preparing them, testing them, forming them to sit on a throne. And in much the same way, Jesus, as the Lion of Judah, he's telling his disciples, endure, persevere, press on, because a seat at my table is waiting for you. A throne is waiting for you. And friends, the very same promise is extended to us. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ promises us a seat at his table, 
a seat that is secure by nothing less than the one who came to give his life as a ransom. Well, such security would be needed because we shift from looking at true greatness next to looking at true security. Verses 31 through 34. And I say that because notice this ominous shift in verse 31. Jesus repeats Simon's name twice. And he foretells that Satan has required. He has demanded. Not only Peter, but the you there is actually plural. All the disciples are in the crosshairs. And here's the demand. Verse 31. To sift Peter like wheat. And do not let the quaintness of this agricultural metaphor fool you into muting the absolute ferocity, the absolute intensity of this satanic request. To sift like wheat is to put grain into a sieve. In modern terms, it'd be like a wire wire mesh to separate the head of grain from from, uh, the stalk. In other words... The full force of Satan's request is to violently shake Peter, to crush him, to pulverize him, to grind him, to obliterate Peter and the disciples, to expose them to humiliation, to guilt, to despair, and to bring the height of slander upon the living God and dishonor upon His people. You can infer Satan's motive, you look at verse 32, is that their faith would fail. That word for fail in verse 32 is Greek word eklipe, out of which perhaps you can hear our English word eclipse. In other words, Satan's hatred of God's light is so intense, he wants it to be eclipsed. He wants it to be extinguished and darkened out forever. And Jesus tells Peter, this is Satan's malicious, relentless, hateful, spiteful request of you. As one commentator said, this warning should make Peter alert. I thought that's about as delicate as you could put it. Because the truth is, Satan has the very same malevolent, relentless pursuit of you. He is always full of this lustful desire. And so we can ask, in those perilous conditions, with this kind of adversary, with this kind of hate, with this kind of agenda, what possible hope does Peter have? What possible hope do you have? Well, here it comes. In the form of nothing less than six words. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Satan will sift, but I will intercede. Satan will prowl, but I will pray. Satan will tempt, but I will triumph. Christian, that is your hope. The intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your confidence. That Christ, by the power of an indestructible life, always, not sometimes, but always, lives to intercede for you. That is your comfort. But sadly, you can see verse 33, just how, how little comfort of what little estimate this intercession by Jesus seems to be to Peter. It's always wise to recall those two extremes with Satan, of giving him too much power or thinking he has too little power 
And Peter certainly seems in the latter camp. As he responds, not with humility, but this beating of his chest, saying, Jesus, I will never deny you. And of course, Jesus says, not only once you will, but thrice. But notice, Jesus does not pray that Peter would avoid all trials, that he would avoid all temptations or testing. Satan is allowed to buffet Peter. Rather, his prayer is very, very specific, that though his faith would wobble, though it would totter, that ultimately he would be delivered from his trials and his temptations, that his faith would not fail. Faith, after all, is the gift of God. We are justified by faith. The righteous live by faith. By faith, we receive Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can imagine Satan despises your faith and wants to put it in a sieve. But this is true security. When the saints are tempted, accused to give up, to lose heart, to grow weary in doing good, even blinded by pride like Peter, this is true security. As the great John Murray once said, the intercession of Christ meets every need of the believer. Every grace bestowed, every blessing enjoyed, every benefit received cannot be separated from this truth that Jesus Christ prays for you. And so having seen true greatness, having rested in true security, let us now marvel at true fulfillment in verses 35 through 38. Because, of course, we we need intercession, don't we? But we also need far more than just intercession. Our condition is much worse than that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, know that as Christians we confess much more than that Jesus was a great teacher, a great leader, a great servant, even a great intercessor. We confess that the Scriptures declare that we are born into sin, that we are dead in sin, that we are alienated from God, that we are without hope in the world. And so long before Christ is our example, He is our Savior, who died to pay for all of our sins, and all of it according to God's plan. And that is what we have next. Because you will soon see this great sin of Peter is only met by the greatest of love in Jesus Christ. That in almost the same breath that Jesus foretells that Peter will deny him, Jesus foretells that Peter will deny Jesus, Jesus then foretells that he will die for him. So back into our text. Firstly, verse 35. Jesus says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, No. So that is from Luke 10. And the implication being, I sent you all out penniless, I sent you out destitute, and everywhere you went, Doors flung open, right? They roll out the red carpet for you. It's a warm welcome for the disciples, largely in the Gospels. Verse 36, but now, but now, let the one who has no money bag take it. And in fact, sell your cloak and buy a sword if you don't have one. So why this call to arms all of a sudden? Well, this, of course, does not mean that God will no longer provide for them, but rather that it will be through ordinary means during extraordinary tribulation. In other words, Jesus is saying what he's been saying all along. The world has made up its mind about me. The world has made up its mind that the king of glory will be a rejected king. And as the wise shepherd, Jesus is telling them ahead of time, if they have hated me, they will hate you. It will not be warm welcomes everywhere you go. It will not be the red carpet everywhere you go. You must be ready for conflict and hostility. You are following a crucified 
Messiah. And such rejection is what comes next in verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And so let it be clear. The rejection of Jesus is not mere happenstance. It is not the circumstance of man. It is nothing less than the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. And what good news that is for us this morning. That there are no maybes with our great God. It must be fulfilled. God is not making His best attempt at salvation. A possibility at salvation. No, it is securing nothing less than salvation. It must be fulfilled. But let's look at how it's going to be fulfilled. Once more, verse 37, it must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Here is true greatness. Obedience to the point of death. Do you see the diligence of the Lord Jesus? Nothing will keep him from doing the work that his father had given him to do. Keep in mind, right around the corner comes the denial of his beloved disciples that they are even acquainted with him. And could you imagine Satan's accusations now? Really, Jesus? You're going to die for this group? You're going to die for this pathetic group of sinners who claim to to not even know you? And Jesus' response is, not only do I love them, but because I love them. I will be numbered as a transgressor. That verse, you may recall, is from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It's one of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah that speaks of the one who would, who would bear the sins of the many, who would be like the lamb led to the slaughter. And evokes the imagery of sacrifices. You could, you could think of the Day of Atonement, like the book of Leviticus, where the high priest would, would stand up and we take his hand and place his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. As if to say, this animal represents me. And then he would confess his sins. And he would confess the sins of all the people. And take his hand and place it on that sacrificial animal. And confess adultery and fornication and lust and coveting and greed and idol worship. And on and on and on. And he would confess these sins. And what was the fate of that animal? But one of forsakenness and alienation and the punishment of guilt. And the Lord Jesus says, that will be fulfilled in me. I will pour out my soul unto death. Understand, he's not teaching about atonement so much as he is saying, now comes the final day of atonement. Where the sins of the people will be laid not on a bull, not on a goat, but upon the precious Lamb of God once and for all. And it is at Calvary, in profound humiliation, that he took all of our ugliness, that we could have all of his loveliness. That every stripe, Every wound, every moment of judgment is payment for our transgressions. The just for the unjust. That he who knew no sin might become sin so that a Peter, a denying Peter, so that you could become the righteousness 
of God. And understand, it is no mere man, it is no priest who is laying those sins upon the Lord Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him in order that he might heal us. This is the great exchange. All of our sin, our death, our judgment placed upon him, and in its place we get his life, his righteousness. Most of all, we get him. As a Christian asks, what sin is there that was left undone? What transgression is there that could not be laid, could not be paid for by this Messiah? And so the cry of the Lord Jesus will be, it is finished, because it is finished. Unless we think this is the love of Christ alone, remember what propelled Jesus to the cross. In his own words, the reason my Father loves me is because I lay down my life. Well, so heavy it is upon the Lord Jesus. The verse 37, he simply says, it is enough. It is enough. My passion is drawing nearer. It is enough. And so as we begin to close, let me offer up just a few considerations to lay up in our hearts, to practice in our lives from Luke 22. Firstly, draw comfort. Draw comfort from Christ, your mediator, Christ, your intercessor. I can distinctly recall what was probably, probably over a decade uh, ago in seminary one day at class, and as was the usual custom during class, or before class rather that is, is that there would always be a prayer. We would start the class with prayer, and almost always the professor is the one who would pray for class. But I distinctly remember on this day, the professor was none other than the great Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And so he opens the class up with prayer. And what stood out to me was that during a portion of his prayer, he was praying for me. Well, really, he was praying for all the students, but I like to think of it as he was praying (laughs) for me. And I thought, wow, that is really something. That is really special. Sinclair Ferguson is praying for me. And if I could say it with utmost respect as it pertains to Luke 22, no. No, that's not really special. What's special is that Jesus Christ, the unchangeable priest, declares that he always lives to intercede for you and that he is able to save you, not somewhat, but to the uttermost. And so, Christian, do you have woe upon woe? Do you have chronic pain? marital troubles, unrelenting temptation, besetting sin, know that Christ is praying for you. Are you lonely, fearful, anxious, depressed? Know that Christ is praying for you. Says the great Puritan Thomas Goodwin once said, your misery cannot exceed Christ's mercy. The heart of the Lord Jesus is taken up with these afflictions, these tribulations, and what does he do with this abiding concern? He goes to the Father, who is all ears, by the way, who does not need to be persuaded, who is not reluctant, but who delights to hear his Son pray, Father, keep them in our love. Do not let the bond be severed between I and the sheep. And the Father says, yes. Secondly, 
not simply draw comfort, but we could say draw comfort in order to take courage. Notice the second part of verse 32, that after Jesus informs Peter of his denial, and after he tells him that he will pray for him, he gives him this marching order. Peter, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now just think of, if you're Peter, how easy it would be to wallow, to sulk, right? Woe is me. I sat there and I beat my chest that I wouldn't deny Jesus. Little servant girl comes along and I outright deny Jesus. I'm not worthy to be a disciple. I'm not worthy to be in the kingdom. I'm no good. And maybe you've had that kind of self-centered sulk session before. But Jesus, like the kind older brother, he will have none of it. He tells Peter, not only personally take courage, but take courage so that you can impart it to others. Strengthen your fellow brothers. And you read through the book of Acts and you almost think, is this really the same man? who denied Jesus because he's so full of boldness and confidence and strength. He strengthened his brothers. This is, after all, one of the reasons that God comforts us. As 2 Corinthians says, that God comforts us in all of our afflictions for the very reason that we might be able to comfort and strengthen others. And lastly, draw comfort. Draw comfort in order to take courage. But lastly, behold true greatness. Behold true greatness. What would be your first words to somebody that had betrayed you? Your first words to somebody that denied they even knew you? These, after all, are some of the last words that Jesus would have with Peter prior to the cross, with the disciples prior to the crucifixion. But what is truly marvelous, true greatness, we could say, Do you know what the first words are when the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, comes to the disciples and comes to Peter? His first words are, peace to you. Peace to you. Who could say such a thing but the great Savior? Who could say such a thing but the one one who made peace by the blood of his cross? the one who was numbered as a transgressor, that we might become the children of God, our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. True greatness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you did not spare your Son, but you gave him as the Lamb led to the slaughter, as the man of sorrows, as the one who was intimately acquainted with grief, that it was your very will to crush him, that you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that we might have all of him, his life, his righteousness, justification, sanctification, indeed, the very Lord Jesus himself. And so we pray that you would work your word into our hearts and in our lives. And we ask these things in the great and the glorious name of the Lord Jesus. And amen.